Welcome to History in 7. Today, I want to say a few words about mobility and history. That really struck me when I read about it for the first time as a graduate student. The idea comes from an article by Stephen Thernstrom and Peter R. Knights called Men in Motion, Some Data and Speculations About Urban Population Mobility in 19th Century America, which appeared in the Journal of Interdisciplinary History, Volume 1, Number 1, in the autumn of 1970. In the 28-page article, Thernstrom, who was from UCLA, later from Harvard, and Knights, who was from Illinois and later from York, uh, take up the observation of Joseph Kennedy, who had been the superintendent of the uh, 1850 census, that the roving tendency of our people is given too little attention by historians. Rural mobility, they say, had been well studied by Mallon in 1935, Merle Curdy in 1959, and Coleman in 1962. But the point they make about urban population change may apply equally to rural change and may expand on the findings of these earlier historians. Um, recorded net population changes from census to census, they say, though often dramatic, pale into insignificance by comparison with the actual gross volume of in and out movement. Even in the most stable, small, or medium-sized community, which has yet been examined, they say approximately half of the population was transient within a relatively brief span of years. To illustrate their point, the authors examined Boston documents to find what they called the proportion of the city's 1890 residents who had moved into Boston in the preceding decade. In that decade, the city's population had risen from 363,000 to 448,000. Um, and they said that the, the number, the proportion of the city's residents who had moved into Boston in that preceding period was fully one third. In fact, they say, because people were constantly leaving the city, nearly 800,000 people moved into Boston between 1880 and 1890 to produce the net migration increase of 65,179. The turnover of the Boston populations means that just about 700,000 people left the city in 10 years. These people, of course, all went somewhere. The 1880s were not a unique anomaly in this regard. Between 1830 and 1890, when Boston population increased from 61,000 to that 448,000 number, uh, the number of migrants entering Boston, they say, was an amazing 3,325,000, or eight and a half times the net population increase. Again, that means nearly 3 million people left Boston and went someplace else. Where did they go? And when they got there, did they stop moving around? There's apparently no reason to suppose that they did. Returning to the same dwelling after the passage of only 365 days, the authors say, the city directory canvasser had less than a 50-50 chance of finding its former inhabitants living there. Of course, the rich, who owned businesses and real estate, were much more persistent than the poor. Thernstrom and Knights even speculated that transients might be higher than they could have even measured, because many poor workers may not have stayed around long enough to be counted in even a single census. 
A political consequence of short tenancy, of course, was disenfranchisement. This may have led, the author speculated, to a widespread feeling of alienation from the political process and a corresponding inability to organize effective dissident organizations. Uh, it may also have contributed to the growth of regional voluntary organizations and even uh, the Knights of Labor that could offer people some continuity in spite of their movements from place to place. The existence of this high mobility uh, floating proletariat that Thernstrom and Knights described challenges the image of a nation of loosely connected islands that was described in Robert Wiebe's book, The Search for Order, because they would have been moving constantly between these islands, or even between the urban islands and the bigger rural sea, uh, taking ideas and attitudes with them as they traveled from place to place. And this could have had huge implications for popular culture. Thirdstrom and Knight's thesis seems to have been pretty well accepted by their peers. Howard Chudikoff from Brown paraphrased and cited them in the first note of his article, A Reconsideration of Geographical Mobility in American Urban History in 1994, taking the thesis pretty much as proven. David Ward, earlier writing on uh, American ethnic ghettos in the 1982 transactions of the Institute of British Geographers, also cited their article as proof that Irish immigrants were highly mobile. And Edward Pesson had cited the article in 1972 to explain why the poor did not become involved in antebellum urban politics. But unfortunately, the authors of textbooks either didn't get the memo or decided that their readers would be confused by these findings. Now, I understand the frustration that textbook authors can feel when we really want to drill down deeper into a topic and we just don't have the time. However, there are some things that I think you have to mention, even if they make the story more complex. The implications of transience among the poor and persistence among the rich are huge if you're interested in understanding changes in the relative power of the social classes. And that's been a topic that textbooks have often wanted to tiptoe around in the past. But this may be changing as we again find ourselves in a gilded age when wealth inequality and the political power that wealth buys has become a major focus of concern. So I hope you found that interesting. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you again next time.